Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. Every episode, we upload for you the expertise, insights, and opinions of thought leaders, innovators, and creators on topics at the intersection of technology and society. We'll cover pervasive and emerging technologies that are influencing and impacting our business, education, governments, research, and culture. I'm Jay. I'm Jessica. And I'm John. And we're the co-producers of the Austin Forum Upload. Hello and welcome to the Austin Forum Upload. Today we've got another episode of Artificial Intelligence Facts, Fiction, and Fun. I'm John Lockman. I'm Luke Wilson. And I'm Jay Boisseau, the founder and executive director of the Austin Forum. And we're pleased to have with us today a good friend of ours, Jay Williams, the CTO of Quantum Materials Corporation. Jay, thanks for joining us. Howdy, everybody. So, Jay, we're going to ask you to tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Great. Well, uh, I'm a 30 plus year veteran of the technology industry, mostly been involved in, uh, you know, bleeding edge kinds of things like wide area networks, then the internet, uh, then software on the internet, then internet on the internet, and then more internet. Uh, and moving into things like uh, artificial intelligence and complex uh, kind of uh, solutions. So today I'm the chief technology officer of Quantum Materials Corp, where we use quantum dots in our anti-counterfeiting platform, as well as in our uh, COVID-19 QMC Health ID app to uh, allow people to validate their testing regimes. And we really should do a podcast sometime on Quantum Materials Corp because of those two things you just mentioned. But today's episode is AI, facts, fiction, and fun. So I'll start off the, with the first one. Jay, what did you bring for us today in terms of AI facts? What's your favorite recent result or achievement or news item you've seen in the AI community? Well, there are two great things. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting about AI is that um, because initially over the last 20 years, AI has been extremely expensive as something to do because of the nature of things uh, like many of you have seen with open AI and, and things like that. It's been dominated by a lot of very large players. You know, I've been privileged to to not only start my own company in AI, which was a smaller player, but also because of the nature of open source and a lot of the, the great things that smaller companies have been you know, working on, we've now come to the stage to where um, there's a consortium out there called the AI Infrastructure Alliance that is actually bringing together some of the great work of all these smaller independent companies to create an open shared framework, just like we did with things like the LAMP stack for, you know, for um, web design and building and everything. So that now other companies can build on those tool sets and companies that don't have the opportunity or can't necessarily afford to go with, you know, a complex stack from Microsoft or AWS or Google, they can use these stacks to be able to, to build uh, interesting and exciting, you know, new things. That's the AI Infrastructure Alliance. Yeah, it's uh, AIIA. Just to make it, just to make it very fun. I'm sure, you know, I, I've already weighed in and said, you know, could we please have less vowels? So you mentioned OpenAI in your comments about that, and I, I really thought that's what OpenAI was. Silly me, I thought something called OpenAI was going to create the Open AI Infrastructure Stack. Um, well, they do, right? Except they don't. They they work on really huge, you know, problems, right? They work on really huge problems with really huge things. And who are all the members of OpenAI? Really huge companies working on really huge problems. And there are a lot of people, and there are a lot of there are a lot of what I'll call more commonplace problems or smaller problems that you know you can't take a you know nuclear reactor to go solve that problem, right? It would be better to take you know a gas-powered uh, engine. The tools are similar in some of the things they're doing, but in addition, when you're doing something with like an open AI, you need 
AI pipelines, you need all kinds of infrastructure tools just to be able to even talk to and use the output from something like that. So the AI Alliance has basically been putting things together so that you can have a complete stack, you know, to do that. Similar to what OpenStack did, you know, on the on the overall, you know, infrastructure front before. As I said, it, you know, can we please have OpenStack with less committees? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, and I, I think they took that to heart. Um, one of the guys, uh, Daniel Jeffries, who's um, uh, I, I, I don't know what his official title is at Pachyderm, uh, you know, is there. And so, you know, the goal is really you can build, you know, as he, I, I, I'm not going to quote him directly because I'll get it wrong, but, you know, he has a great discussion about AI ML pipelines and how important those are, you know, to the process of what people need to do. And if you don't have to waste your time trying to figure out how to do that part, you can do a lot more interesting things with the data and the science around, you know, machine learning and AI. Yeah, I mean, all the all the advances in frameworks with, you know, TensorFlow and all of the things that have come at us late in the last few years to really make AI accessible is great. And this sounds like a really good software effort. Do you know of any uh, hardware efforts that are doing something similar in terms of making a AI alliance? There's a, a good example is NVIDIA's uh, Jetson product, you know, which is a $99 solution that, you know, small developers can get. So they have a hardware component to be able to do that. But, but even more importantly than that, you know, the, the Apple uh, ecosystem, now the latest iPhones, you know, they have unbelievable machine learning tools you know, built into the to the phones themselves that you can you can build upon to do all kinds of interesting applications. So you know, it's I won't say you can fully abstract from the hardware, but if you've got a you know workflow or a project or something you're trying to do, you can probably expect that there's going to be enough horsepower hardware-wise underneath what you're doing, particularly in mobile applications. You know, on on the iOS platform to get it done. I want to give a little credit to OpenAI too. I feel like I kind of called them out there for a second, but there was a wonderful news item about them yesterday. They announced that they are over 300 applications using their GPT-3 natural language processing API. We've brought up GPT-3 before in this series, but I had no idea they'd reached this milestone of over 300 applications running. And they say they now are generating 4.5 billion words per day um, and continue to scale. That That is really impressive that OpenAI is being used by so many different people as a source for natural language processing. And of course, that just feeds upon itself, assuming they're getting any corrections and comments about any of the usage, they're just improving that, that training model. So I, I imagine that is an incredibly impressive model by now. I haven't looked at outcomes of it often. We've joked on this podcast about the fake news that it generated to show how dangerous it could be in the Brazilian forest discovery of unicorns or something like that a couple of years ago. But um, it's really getting powerful. And combined with the image generation thing, we talked about Dolly a few weeks ago. I really am enjoying tracking the results of OpenAI. Well, and don't get me wrong. I mean, the AI, the infrastructure alliance I was talking about is not the same thing, right? I mean, they are right. open and they've got lots of contribution, and, but they're an API stack, right? You can't use that as your infrastructure. You can have that as a component, as an input output component of something that you're doing. But if you need your own infrastructure, that's not that's not what they're engaged in, right? That's not their their job. So so I don't want to, anything I said that, you know, they're doing fabulous work, but the 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 having your own infrastructure as a small company is very hard, right? I mean, if you yeah. think of all the things that you have to know to go create an AIML pipeline today, when all you want to do is be able to change somebody's oil. 
you know, so, <laughs> so if you have to actually learn all those other things too, I mean, that puts a huge burden on a small company just in terms of technical capabilities. Again, that's what LAMP, the LAMP stack, you know, helped, you know, with everybody for web developers. They didn't suddenly have to have a database administrator. They didn't suddenly have to necessarily have somebody that understood all the nuances of connecting the web to data structure and things like that. They didn't have to know how do I install and scale all of that stuff. They could install the LAMP stack and get to work. And that's kind of the same philosophy around, you know, what they're, they're trying to, to be able to do. And Canonical, by the way, is involved in this. So it's not like a new thing. And they've got strong support from other open source, you know, toolkits. And so, you know, Canonical has been pushing out lots of builds, you know, related to many of the products in that infrastructure stack. So we need to make sure our listeners check out the AI Infrastructure Alliance. Thanks, Jay. So Jay, let's move on to the next topic. AI fiction. What's your favorite recent topic uh, involving AI in, you know, TV, movie, other fictional spaces? Well, it's funny. I, you asked that. I, I spend a lot of time with, with folks in the gaming industry and, uh, and, you know, sometimes in the movie industry. And, you know, one of the, one of the hardest things to manage are actors, right? Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, that actors are tough to manage. It's just that if you've ever produced any of those things, you know, you have a very small window to get everything done. And so you spend a lot of time with the scripts and the things and the you know, actors come in, they read, they do their parts and they're gone, right? Especially, you know, large actors who are literally for large scale movies, you know, a major actor for a 90 minute movie might actually, you know, be on set for two days off and on parts of days. So, you know, and they don't even see the other actors half the time, right? So, so it's, it's hard for us to imagine that, right? Like I could never imagine doing that, but it's the same, especially now as in the age of games where people expect a 40 hour, you know, experience when they buy a game, like the latest, you know, Baldur's Gate game, for example, with all the dialogue, just imagine all the dialogue and everything that's in there. So the hardest part is that when, what happens when you're, you know, you're doing those, seeing the rushes or you're doing something, working through the movie and you're like, oh darn, I wish you just said this instead of that. Well, you can't just ring up the actor and have them, you know, run back in to do that. It's hugely expensive. There's several companies, but one of the major companies, Replica Studios, that's been doing this. What they have been doing is using AI to build a library of the actor's voice while they're in gear, engaged to do that. And they've also contracted with a lot of you know, actors to come in and actually start to build a library of their voice so that then as a director, uh, you can actually type what you want them to say and they say it. And you can add mood, you can add all kinds of things to it so that, you know, you you can actually get the nuanced levels of, of conversation that, uh, that people want. And that's, to me, that's like, I mean, the, the, what that will do to be able to change storytelling and how we can tell stories. I mean, it's one thing as a writer to learn how to create mood and put a book together and those kind of things, but giving you the ability to actually take what you wrote and convert that into diction and speaking from, you know, imagine if we all had the ability to just grab Sean Connery and, uh, you know, have him act out our favorite part. There's obviously a lot of room for abuse of this. Um, we're just going to say that right up front. But uh, so obviously needs to be in a controlled environment. Otherwise, you can imagine the first industry that's going to be using this for a lot of things. It's an amazing way to immortalize a voice too. And, exactly. and think about, think about like you said, even in gaming, I mean, that's one, you've seen those, those dialogue stacks from like Red Dead Redemption 2 and Baldur's Gate. And there's a lot of writing, a lot of voice acting that's going on. And there's not a lot of time to go back and fix stuff. But what about like other possibilities there? Like if I could get H. John Benjamin simulator, then I can make as many Bob's Burgers episodes or Futurama episodes or <laughs> Adventure Time episodes as I, at my heart's desire, right? 
Yeah, fan fiction is going to mean a whole new thing, right? Because, I mean, now it's fan fiction. I mean, imagine if you just have your voice library from Star Wars and you want to write a new Star Wars episode. There you go. I mean, you know, most people that are listening to us now are listening to a podcast. I mean, if you'd have even told me when we were putting together kind of the first underpinnings of the internet that one of the most popular things in the world was going to be listening to, to the radio again, uh, I would have said, no, we're in the process of replacing it, man. What are you talking about? We're not going to listen to the radio anymore. And so when you look at Spotify and you look at podcasts, you look at all the kind of things that we're doing here for audio streaming. You know, it's funny early on, you know, I was working with the real audio guys uh, to be able to, to put all that together. I'm sure everybody on the on podcast has forgotten what real audio was. But at the time, it was the it was all there was. And so, uh, you know, as we were doing that, we used to we used to joke that, you know, we were antiquated. You know, uh, we didn't really know that we were. We were far ahead of the game. You know, we really need to do a history of the internet episode with Jay Williams, since he's worked on all of these technologies that many of them have been forgotten by most people, but his memory is a internet museum of often successful for their time, but now, you know, disappeared technologies. Jay, you uh, you helped create the Sugarland BBS. That's one of the things that I always love yep. to tell people about you. That was a long, that was a really long time ago. So. <laughs> and someday we'll explain what a BBS is to many of our listeners. So <laughs> yeah, they, they, they think all those forums came from nowhere. So. They think the web we, we was used... here when they were born. <laughs> yeah. It just started like that, right? I mean, that's how that works. It just, yeah, it just popped whole out of the ground like that. <laughs> so Jay, I've got to ask you with the ability to just generate synthetic audio of a voice actor based on text, we were just talking about GPT-3 and it's generating basically enough words now that you'll never reach the end of the internet. What's that going to mean for fiction development in the future? I mean, we talked about, we've talked about Dolly on this program before too, being able to mm -hmm. generate scenes from descriptions. Do we need actors, writers, scene developers, or is the world just going to be a hodgepodge of computer generated? So I, you know, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I think of, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, people that work with me and know it, you know, I don't actually like that term very much. I think that what we're really building is augmented intelligence. And the reason I say that, so for example, those voices and the, the things that they're doing at Replica Studios are based on human voice. They're not creating it out of nothing, right? They're taking a human voice and building a library around that because, you know, I think it's going to be a long time before we're going to have the ability to, to capture the nuance, you know, in a speech. I mean, if you ever listened to Derek Jacoby do the opening to Henry V, oh, for a muse of fire, just for something, uh, you know, I got chills just saying that because it's such an awesome delivery of, of Shakespeare. And so, so thinking that we're going to auto-generate that from something, you know, I don't know. I, I'm always fascinated by what the aliens are hearing when they, when they tune in to all of our words and our things, and they're looking at all this kind of stuff, trying to figure out who the heck we are. You know, we just keep generating more and more and more things. I mean, I, I was very funny. So I was, uh, I was trying to, uh, there's a, there are several audios, uh, files out there of H.G. Wells reading some of his some of his works and different pieces of things so shape of things to come things like that so i started trying to look for them there was so much junk in my search you know trying to find that from people trying to sell me now non-copyright you know and the copyrights expired on some of his works and stuff and so there was literally so much replicated crap out there it took me almost 45 minutes to find a, the real you know ones to sort through things so i think that you know one of the interesting industries that we're gonna have to create around all of these things is the authentication protocol for all these things so that we can tell what's real and what's a replica 
so that we can we can understand the difference between I mean you'll know the nuance when you when you hear it but who can listen to 300 clips to find the right one to know that it's authentic beyond what's real and what's not what's licensed and what's not right if you're trying to well, sell your a- voice I mean and people are just replicating it all over the place well what are we going to do with that <laughs> Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of, I mean, interesting, you know, IP issues and all those kind of things, you know, as well. But even just for the for the fact of, of being able to have a sorting mechanism that works right so that we don't waste all of our time trying to find real things versus fake things. I mean, we obviously see this in news, but that's just one place that that comes up. For example, if you go on Amazon to buy something, you, you've got to sort through all of the fakes to find the real ones, right? How many people do that every day? I'm sure everybody does now, right? I mean, as you just type something in, you know, even if you know the brand of what you want, half the time, three sponsored ones come up before that that aren't the brand you actually asked for. Uh, and so things like that, you know, are, are I think our current challenges, you know, in the next decade to figure out how we're gonna do that before this. I mean, not that it's not already proliferating out of control, but you know, it's, it's something that we can solve. Something we talk about a lot, the, uh, the unfortunate dystopian future that we're trying to avoid. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, I don't, I don't really, the dystopian word is always interesting to me. I think it's super exciting, right? I think people get confused with this dystopian word and things. And, you know, we always have unintended consequences when we do anything, right? Um, You know, throughout history, every technology that, that we've come up with, you know, has created all kinds of unintended consequences. I mean, for example, Romans putting roads, uh, you know, all over the place created a great opportunity for banditry, right? Because now not only could the legions move faster around things, now everybody knew where everybody was going. In the old days, there were so many paths and everything, right? But like, for example, one example in the Middle East is that, you know, people before, because of the nature of the, the terrain and everything, they couldn't, they had to load everything on a donkey and cart it around to do things. With the Roman roads, two wagons wide and able to uh, support larger wagons, all the merchants started loading them up. Well, what that meant was now they couldn't go off different paths and around everything. So, you know, they basically became, you know, literally a toll booth, you know, with merchants, with bandits could just sit on the hill knowing that their wagon couldn't go any other way. It created a whole uh, institution. And by the way, when I say bandits, these were like workers that weren't working at the moment. They're not literally bandits. They were just people that are like, oh, it's Tuesday. Bob, the merchant comes down this road. Let's go over there and get a toll. And so, so there's always unintended consequences of technology that even moves the whole world forward. Roads being one of the things the Romans gave us. I do always find it strange that we live in a society where people are afraid to be replaced by robots instead of excited. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to it. That hammock looks really good out my window. So if exactly. I just had a robot to do, if I had a robot with my voice doing this podcast, I could just, you know, get out. You know, it's Friday. funny, John. I think I go back and forth on that. By Friday, I don't want to be replaced by a robot. But on Monday, I often feel like I'd like to be replaced by a robot on Mondays <laughs> in particular. It's usually on payday when I don't want to be replaced by a robot. Definitely on that's payday. Usually, on that's payday. usually mine when I go, God, really? I don't want to be replaced by a robot today. Yeah, with good IP and licensing, though, we can solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, maybe not replace, but augment. All right, we've got one more for you, Jay. Uh, what is your favorite AI fun? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I see lots of stuff, you know, and I, I, I have a lot of things I, I, you know, I get to see lots of things in the gaming industry and other industries where people send me stuff, and we do things, but occasionally one creeps up on you that's sometimes even creepy. And, you know, I, some people have probably seen it. There's, there's stuff going along out there. One of the, the genealogical companies came up with an AI service, you know, called Deep Nostalgia. And 
I have to tell you, I went through and, and like animated a bunch of uh, my family's pictures and shared them around with different parts of the, the family. And I mean, I had people crying on the phone. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's crazy because either there were people they knew only as a child and they never really got a chance to interact with them or people that have a lot of historical significance in the family and, and people never saw them alive. They just saw them in an old daguerreotype or in, you know, an older, older type of photo or things. And just the kind of animation that comes in there, which is not hugely complex, but they suddenly seem alive. I mean, they suddenly seem as if, you know, they're looking at you or they're, they're at least interacting with each other. That's the other ones that are amazing where there were a couple where, you know, we had, uh, we had, you know, uh, husband and wife, you know, in the picture and suddenly, suddenly they were interacting together. You, you, know, you can see them in there that they were, they were in motion to do things. And uh, I'm just fascinated by that. And I can't wait, you know, for some of the animation kinds of things. You've probably seen some of the restored footage, you know, from the 19th century that, that people have been doing and things like that. So imagine when we can apply that technology to the backgrounds in all those pictures and the places around those. So you can start to bring some of those things to life as well. I mean, to me, that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing, fun, you know, kind of thing to do, but it also has historical and personal significance to people because you can, you can now see and interact with people that you could, could never, never do before. Yeah, I've seen a, a couple of projects like this. And I think this type of work is really interesting, especially for history buffs. There was a project uh, I saw a few months back. A, a team had taken statuary of the Roman emperors and used AI to convert them into actual looking, realistic looking faces. And I think being able to do these types of things where we can bring life to you know, historical figures and historical context is, is a, one of those less dystopian possibilities yeah, well, one with, of the, with artificial, you know, artificial generation. Yeah, one of, the, one, of the, one of the creepy parts, though, is that somebody took that same technology and started using it on game boxes. So the, the covers of game boxes where a lot of times you have historical figures and different things on them, you know, like the diplomacy box or, you know, old things. And so they started using those. So you'd have the game box covers actually coming to life like that. Again, unintended consequence. I'm sure my art heritage didn't expect people to, you know, plug in those kind of things in there to do it. But it's interesting, you know, I studied classical studies and one, one uh, summer in Greece when we were doing things, one of the things we did was we took a couple of the statues uh, that, that were in the Agora and, and actually all of the statues or most of the statues that you ever see, particularly classical ones were actually painted, right? When they were actually mm -hmm. live, they weren't just naked statues standing around out there like mannequins in the store. They actually were not only painted, but they wore clothes. They actually had clothing or armor or helmets or all different kinds of things on them. And so we took two different statues during the summer and we restored them, you know, to the best likeness that we could come up with historically to put it on there. And I mean, seeing the statue of Athena Nike, which is the, the, large statue of Athena that was that was in the Parthenon or next to the Parthenon, um, you know, fully outfitted was crazy. I mean, it was like so different, you know, than than the normal statues that you see of those things just sitting there, you know, looking like they're just naked standing there. And so they were so much more lively. There was so much part of life. There was so much, you know, energy in them that doesn't get communicated in that kind of barren form that they sit there. And so this is kind of like that. It's being able to, to take those things and to bring us, bring us back to them and sort of bring them back to us. Um, so it gives you a very different perspective, you know, on things when you can see history, you know, move 
Uh, and so I, I really, you know, and that was, you know, I, you guys probably know this, but, you know, the birth of the cinema was the ability to try and do that. You know, when people started trying to, to bring history to life, many of the earliest movies were all about how do we, how do we show, uh, you know, our history to be able to, to, to do things. So Jay, I saw an article that talked about that app, My Heritage and the, the concept of Deaton nostalgia. But it also talked about an app called Avatarify. That's and right. So, yeah. So yeah. I want to download that. That's actually one of my weekend tasks is to download that. And the person mentioned being able to uh, have George Washington sing disco and Marilyn no, Monroe can. blow him a kiss. Oh, no, so I'm going to oh, be yeah, off do... with Avatarify this weekend. Yeah. Don't don't take any video. So uh, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to see that. Okay. I, I got one more on that. So the digital altering of the faces or the making them talk or the uh, the one that Jay just brought up about making characters sing and whatnot. Um, we've already kind of seen that same thing used in a negative way. The one I saw the other day was uh, a woman who was sending deep fakes of cheerleaders who were not her daughter so that she would get on the squad doing this exact thing, taking pictures of them drinking, smoking, things like this that were, you know, to show them in a bad light. What do you think about what we can do to help make it more visible between synthetic and real, real imagery? So, you know, and I, I'll try hard not to get on my soapbox, but, you know, the past probably 15 years of work and the things that I've done have all revolved around a couple of things. But one of the things that, that's been foremost all the time is digital identity um, and being able to, to prove uh, an actual identity. You know, the old saying, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Well, nowadays it's more important than ever that we have the ability to distinguish between real and fake. And the first thing that we can do, because we are humans as opposed to all the other things, and we do have ways to validate our own, right, is to, is to actually work harder on digital identity and how we're going to do things. There's a lot of fear in the world, particularly around vaccinations and health data and all those kind of things about, you know, I need to, I don't want to share my identity. I need to protect myself. I need to be anonymous. The flip side of that is that as long as everyone stays anonymous, these things are going to be rampant. And so, you know, we're, there's, there's some point just like there was between public and private life. I mean, there was no private life in the Roman empire. There was no even concept of private life in the Roman Empire. In fact, that didn't even really come about till the Victorian age, right? This concept that there were things that were not in the public square. And so, you know, we've got to start thinking about because we now, the nature of our community today is different than it has been for the last two or 300 years. And so we've got to evolve to a different stage to where, you know, we own who we are and we have control of that. And with technology, that means we have to adopt methods and do things that give us back control of those things. Um, not to put in a plug for, for, for QMC, but our QMC health ID, and, you know, our tagline on there is we don't control your health data, you do. And so it was all based around the fact that in order to allow people to, to take tests and to share, share and show their results to others, people needed to own that information to feel comfortable enough to be able to keep that information themselves and show it to others. And so, you know, that's been the whole basis of, you know, our blockchain cryptographic based system for identity that's built underneath everything we do at QMC Health ID. There are many other groups working on this. For example, the, the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, has, um, just like IEEE and others, has committees that are working on two things that are very important for all this to work. One is called decentralized identity, which uh, is allowing people to be able to share their identity without a centralized manager of that identity so that no one actually holds the keys to identity but yourself. And the other is verifiable credentials 
which allows you to be able to not only present your identity, but present your credentials. So if you're a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, uh, anybody with a you know, certification, you can validate instantly that certification so that you know when you walk in that doctor's office or work with a nurse or whoever, they are who they say they are. And you know, they, they have those credentials that you're requiring for whatever process you're engaged you know, with them. So both of those are just coming out of uh, the first stages. And so in the next couple of years, you're gonna start to see standards around those that people are gonna interoperate with and be able to, to do things to help this problem of identity. Yeah, this is gonna be one of the huge challenges, right? I mean, these deep fakes are so, or can be with enough computational power and enough training data, it can be so compelling. It's gonna be, it's gonna be difficult to prove authenticity. So Jay, I applaud you for all the work you've done on those things in your career and um, you've got a whole new set of challenges ahead of you with the uh, deep fake people getting better and better at it. So with that, I think we need to wrap up today. So Jay, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Austin Forum Upload and our sub-series on AI facts, fiction, and fun. And we look forward to having you back on a future episode. I hope we can get you back in the Austin Forum Upload to talk about a variety of topics. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.